Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. If you are following along in the Pew Bible, it is on page 813. Galatians chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 7 and 8. This is the word of the Lord. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our glorious Father, we pray that you would be praised above all praises and blessed above all blessing. We thank you again to be in this worship service. We thank you for the precious gift of your word, and these words are the words of eternal life. We pray, God, that you would bless this message to the individual hearers, to our church, and others listening online. We ask that you would Place these things within our heart, Lord, that we would better be able to honor you in all of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with one of my students, a sweet young lady who happens to be a Muslim. Thankfully, we have the kind of relationship where we can discuss some of our religious disagreements. Now, I have a working knowledge of Islam, not only the Quran, but the Hadith and the Sunnah, which consist of the sayings, the teachings, and the examples from the life of Muhammad. And with a working knowledge of these sources and their contradictory claims and commentary regarding what we might call their doctrine of salvation, I know that there is no way for the common Muslim to know that he or she has peace with God. So about midway through this conversation with my student, this was the point that I wanted to press on the most, that ultimately she is relying on the merits of her own good works and the arbitrary mercies of Allah to enter Jannah, or paradise. She acknowledged this and then asked me the basis of the Christian hope, to which I responded that the Christian hope is founded entirely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is based on his life, his death, burial, and resurrection. It's based on his atoning blood and his imputed righteousness. It's not based on deeds of merit, lest any man should have anything for which to boast before God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, after explaining this to her, she asked a couple of follow-up questions, and these were good questions. She asked... If peace with God is solely through faith in Jesus, can't Christians believe and go on living however they please? After all, that is tragically what she has observed in her experience with so-called Christians. What about the importance, she asked, even the necessity of good works? This was her pressing on the problem of what is sometimes called nominal Christianity. That is identifying as Christian, but it is in name only with no fruit to substantiate or evidence that one is a true follower of the Lord Jesus. So again, I had to explain this to her, that nominal Christians 
are not real Christians and that biblical faith never results in a dead religion. Rather, biblical faith is the possession of those who've been born again, new creatures with regenerated hearts who are full of the Holy Spirit, equipped and empowered to do good works. I liken this to three links in a chain, new birth, saving faith in Jesus, and good works. It all forms one chain in the Christian life. So if someone has been born again, then their faith will be vindicated by doing good deeds, a la James chapter 2. Just as naturally born babes will inevitably grow and mature into adulthood, so spiritually reborn babes will inevitably grow in Christian maturity. So this was the note on which the conversation with the student ended, that one must believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and God forbid that we should then go on living however we please. True belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ has implications for how we live in every area of life and we are mandated to walk in obedience to all the commands of Christ. That was where my conversation with her ended and that is where I wanted to begin this message this evening. Because this is something that we all need to be reminded of. I'll say it again. True belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ has implications for how we live in absolutely every area of life. And we are mandated to walk in obedience to all of the commands of Christ. And that principle, brethren, is demonstrated most powerfully in books like the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is sort of like an abridged version of Romans. It's all about the gospel, but it's not just the truths that we confess. It also then contains how we must live our lives in light of the gospel. So let me first give a brief overview of the book of Galatians to demonstrate how this is the overall thrust of the book and then see how that leads into our main text this evening. The book was written to the churches in Galatia primarily to combat the false teachings and influence of a group called Judaizers. Judaizers were false brethren who were perverting the gospel by adding works of law to faith for salvation. They would follow Paul's missionary circuits and teach the churches that they had to be circumcised and observe the law of Moses in order to be saved. And not only did they teach this satanic doctrine, but they also slandered the apostle Paul. And you can understand why they would do that. They slandered the messenger because they knew that if they could shake the confidence of the people in the messenger, then they could shake the people's confidence in his message in order to push their own message. So Paul hears of the influence of the Judaizers in Galatia, and he writes this letter to the churches to accomplish three things. Number one, to defend his apostolic ministry. Number two to clarify what the gospel is as well as its relationship to the law. And number three, to present the implications of the gospel for how we must live our lives. So in Galatians 1 through 2, Paul defends his apostleship. And he begins with himself, not because he cares more to defend his own integrity than the gospel, but because he understands that he must first reestablish himself as a credible authority if they're then going to listen to anything else that he has to say. So he spends two chapters defending himself. In chapters three through four, Paul shifts to the gospel message itself, and he begins with a foundational question, which is this. 
How did you receive the Spirit? Was it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The implied answer is that it was by hearing with faith. So, follow-up question. Having been born into this new life in the Spirit by hearing with faith, are you now being perfected by works of the law? And the answer here is absolutely not. Law-keeping is not what saves us, and law-keeping is not what perfects us, no matter how important law is to the Christian life. Righteousness before God could never come through our law-keeping. And Paul goes all the way back to Abraham to make this argument. He quotes the scripture which says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul proves that righteousness has always come through faith in the promised seed, the Lord Jesus. And so it is those who are of faith in Jesus who are sons of Abraham and blessed with him. The law then, which came 430 years after the promise given to Abraham, it brought curses because no one could continue in all things written in it. Therefore Christ came and became a curse for us by suffering and dying on a tree in order that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, the law, which came 430 years after the promise to Abraham, could not annul that promise. It would always be by faith. Well, this then begs a final question. What then was the purpose of the law? Well, it was given not only to govern the children of Israel, but also as a temporary institution. Paul describes it as a household guardian raising a young child in the household until the child is full grown. The law was like a guardian meant to bring us to Christ. And now that Christ has come, now that faith has come, now that the new covenant has come, we are no longer under the law as a covenant. The law, I'm sorry, the Lord came in the fullness of time to accomplish our redemption for us and God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's the gospel. And it is in light of that glorious grace that Paul then confronts the Galatians. Why would you then go back? Why would you then go back to the weak and beggarly elements of the law which held you in bondage? That's what the old covenant order was. It was a covenant of bondage. Elsewhere, he calls it a ministry of death. Why would you go back to that? The new covenant order is a covenant of freedom and life in Christ for the children of promise. That's chapters three through four. But he doesn't then promote lawless living. With the freedom we now have in Christ, does that mean we can live in lawlessness? Like my student asked, if peace with God is solely through faith in Jesus, can't Christians believe and go on living however they please? What about the importance, even the necessity, of good deeds? Doesn't the gospel of salvation through faith just annihilate good works? And this is what Paul deals with in chapters 5 through 6, and he speaks very plainly to this issue. He is simultaneously able to jealously guard the gospel and salvation by faith as well as guarding the importance of Christian holiness. He says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Christian liberty has never 
been an excuse to sin. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. God forbid it. And so in chapters five through six, far from having a gospel of easy believism, Paul presents us with the proverbial fork in the road. The way of the flesh or the way of the spirit. And these two are contrary. You can walk in the flesh in the path of selfishness, the path of carnal pleasures and desires leading to sin, condemnation, and death, or you can walk in the spirit, the path of submission, the path of the pleasures of God, righteousness, peace, and the end everlasting life. That's the choice that the scriptures present to us in Galatians. It's not easy believism. It is counting the cost of what it truly means to believe in and then follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the context in which the Apostle Paul, no doubt filled with great angst and love for the souls in the churches, he writes this very stern warning to them in chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. For the second time, our main text says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Two main points from our text this evening. Number one is the dangers of self-deception. And number two, the law of sowing and reaping. So, point number one, the dangers of self-deception. Self-deception is presented in Scripture as an ever-present danger, both for unbelievers and believers alike. Of course, the presence and influence of self-deception is far worse in unbelievers, not least of which because they believe their spiritual state to be secure apart from Christ. And there is no greater self-deception than that. Some believe there will be no rewards for virtue, nor punishments for sin in judgment. Some believe a profession of any religion will do. Just believe in God, whatever that means, and do good works, whatever that means. Some believe a mere profession of Christianity will save them. Some believe they can just decide to repent later on or make some deathbed confession. Either they believe their false religion is sufficient or they believe that their practical atheism, their rebellion against God will go unpunished. Thus, they are characterized in the scriptures as spiritually blind and in darkness to this day. So we recognize that the presence and influence of self-deception are far worse in both form and extent in unbelievers. But we also recognize that believers too may fall prey to various forms of self-deception because though born again, and brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light, sin is still present within us and has the capacity to deceive. So this warning, do not be deceived, it applies to every single one of us, including Christians. Now specifically for Christians, one of the greatest forms of self-deception to which we can fall is to twist Christian liberty and abuse it. And here are just a few examples of how we sometimes abuse Christian liberty. Number one, we affirm that we have been freed from the penalty of sin by faith in Christ, but we can abuse that by using it as a license to sin just because the eternal penalty has already been paid. That's abuse. 
Number two, we affirm that we have been freed from the domination of sin, but we can abuse that by thinking we can fool around with sin and just repent later, ignoring the fact that sinful actions so easily become sinful habits that are difficult to break. That's abuse. Number three, we affirm that we have been freed from the law as a covenant, but we can abuse that by thinking that in the new covenant, God somehow compromises his holiness and relaxes his standards of righteousness. That is not what God does in the new covenant. And number four, we are free from the rule of men over the conscience. No man can bind the conscience where God has made no law, but we can abuse that by thinking that we then have ample room to indulge things, to indulge things that may not be wrong in and of themselves, but can be harmful to us or others. So we can see that Christian liberty bears tremendous responsibility, but sometimes we deceive ourselves and abuse it, and we've all done this in some form or fashion at one time or another. We sin knowingly, and presume upon God's mercy. We entertain sin in our lives thinking we have the power to shut it off at any moment we choose. We think our God to be less holy than he has revealed himself to be in his word. We think matters of liberty can be freely indulged without caution or care, and we heap up idols to ourselves. Do you know what we do when we think in these ways? We effectively make God out to be a man. That's what we do. When we presume upon God in these ways, we make God a man by treating him how we would treat other people. Just think about it for a moment. Have you ever sinned against someone and just said to yourself, I know they're not going to like this, but I'll ask for forgiveness and they'll get over it. Or we have bad habits. There are things that we do that offend others. And we think, well, I don't see it breaking my relationship with that person. If things get bad, then I'll stop, as though habits are just that easy to break. Or we treat our family members and friends, those whom we love, with less respect than we would strangers. And we think that it's excusable just because we have a relationship with them. That is so backwards. Or we do something that isn't wrong in and of itself, And we indulge without caution or care that it can affect us or others. We think we're entitled. There's nothing wrong with it, and it's my life, so I'm going to do what I want to do. You see what we do to other people? When we do that to God, we bring him down to the level of a man like us. We no longer esteem him in his transcendent holiness as our God. He becomes like a friend, a friend that we expect to compromise himself and compromises holiness to permit our sin without consequence. This is warped thinking, brethren. It's self-deception. We are prone to it. The danger is always present, and that is why Scripture often warns against it. Paul himself, with great insight into the human condition, he warns the churches against self-deception three times in the New Testament. And we'll take a quick look at these. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, he says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Don't be deceived. If you practice such things, you're not inheriting the kingdom. Later on in the same letter, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 33 to 34, he says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits or morals. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. What's he saying? If we think that we can surround ourselves with bad company or surround ourselves with sin and that it's not going to bear consequence, you don't have the knowledge of God. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. The third instance from Paul is here in Galatians 6, which we're working our way through, so I won't read it again. But I will read this from James. James gives us a do not be deceived statement as well. He says this in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He gives us a progression here. Lust leads to sin, leads to death. If we think that we're going to conceive, conceive lust, give birth to sin, and that, that sin is then going to become fully grown in life, then we're deceiving ourselves. Lust leads to sin, leads to death. Do not be deceived. There are also many other warnings about deception in the scriptures, warnings about the deceitful heart, warnings against false teachers. What does all of this tell us? Why constant warnings to the churches about deception? It is because it is an ever-present danger, and this should teach us two things. Number one, at the very least, you can have true believers who can be self-deceived into thinking that because they're saved, there will be no consequences for their actions, but there will. Or number two, and this is the worst-case scenario, people can be so self-deceived that they think that they're Christians when they're actually not. These are both dangerous situations, and it is because there is a holy God with whom we all have to deal. It is as Paul says, this God will not be mocked. God is not mocked. We can deceive ourselves and others by telling lies or living the life lies of hypocrisy, but we cannot deceive God, and to attempt to do so, Paul calls it mockery. Now this word for mocked, I want to give you a picture in mind. It it is to turn up the nose at someone. It is to mark someone out. It is to consider them an easy target or someone who's a, a bit of a pushover. The rebel sinner, he can shake his fist at God, but he will not get away with anything. The believer in sin can think he can offend his father disrespect the blood of his Lord, or grieve the indwelling Holy Spirit, but he will not get away with anything. Self-deception, it leads to sin. Sin puts us all in harm's way, and that is a danger because God will deal with us. So that is point number one, the dangers of self-deception. And this then takes us to our second point, point number two, which is the divine law of sowing and reaping. The law of sowing and reaping is Paul's analogy of choice to illustrate God's law of consequence for sin. Now as a brief aside, 
This is not the teaching of karma, okay? Years ago, I had a young lady come to me. She said, Brandon, we believe what goes around comes around. Isn't that the same thing as karma? And the reality is, is that it's not. Just a little bit about karma here. Karma is an, a concept from Indian philosophy and religious thought. You can see various forms of this in Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and other small Eastern groups. Karma is the belief that the deeds, that's literally what the word means, deeds or acts, the deeds or actions of one's previous existences will determine the state of one's future existences. Now, if that sounds a little strange, it's because karma is intricately tied with the teaching of reincarnation, cycles of death and rebirth known as samsara. Bad deeds in past existences lead to unfavorable existences in future ones, as well as remaining trapped in the cycles of samsara, death and rebirth. However, good deeds in past existences lead to favorable existences in future ones with the ultimate goal of achieving moksha. Moksha is final release from samsara. It is to finally escape the trappings you can hear the negative connotation there, to escape the trappings of human existence and then to pass, depending on who you ask, into some liberated bliss or non-existence altogether. Last thing to note is that karma from past lives is not determined by a moral governor such as God in a theistic sense, a personal sovereign who gives recompense according to one's deeds. Karma is simply one's relationship with reality as a sort of abstraction. Uh, the best way I could describe this is the individual's relationship with a causal law that just exists out there, apart from a god. It is an automatic process inherent to nature itself. So we have a number of issues here. Karma has no grounding in God. The moral standards are the standards of man. We have reincarnation along with transformation, seemingly endless existences, human existence perceived as a trap, and the ultimate goal of being released into eternal oblivion. No, we do not believe in karma, and we should hate teachings like that, but we do believe in the law of sowing and reaping. Paul says this, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now, I know many of you love gardening, and this is garden imagery, so let's all journey into a garden so we can think through these sowing and reaping concepts. Imagine yourself in a garden, and it's early spring, also known as sowing season. You've turned over and cultivated the soil, and you're ready to begin planting. You have all your bags of seed, and you know what type of seed is in each bag. And the reason that you know what type of seed is in each bag is because there are different types of seed. God didn't make all seeds the same, like mystery seeds that we plant and then we're surprised by what comes out of them. Why not? Why wouldn't God do that? It's because God is a God of order and he established a law in the natural order that everything, including plants, produces after its kind. This is what we learn from Genesis chapter 1. We see that fish produce fish, not birds. 
Birds produce birds, not cattle. And cattle produce cattle, not human beings. Humans produce humans, so on and so forth. Well, the same is true with plant life. Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, it says this. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So what we have here are species of plants. A plant yields a particular type of seed, and that seed, when planted, produces only according to what is contained in it. So you're in this garden with different types of seed. If you plant corn seed, you get corn. If you plant apple seed, you get apple trees. How is this relevant? It's because as with things that hold true in God's natural order, they are analogous to what is true in God's moral order. That your thoughts, words, and deeds are like seeds. And when planted in the garden of life, those seeds contain life in them that will eventually come to fruition. So whatever seeds you sow in thought, word, and deed, you will reap in kind according to what you've sown. The problem is that in our sin, we sometimes sow bad seed and still expect good fruit. But you can't sow bad seed and expect it to produce other than that which is contained in it. You can't plant corn seed and expect to reap peppers. You can't plant apple seed and expect to reap oranges. Well, likewise, you can't sow bad moral seed and then expect to reap good fruit. You can't sow the seed of lies and expect to reap the fruit of integrity. You can't sow the seed of laziness and expect to reap the fruit of diligent labors. You can't sow the seed of immorality and reap the fruit of of purity. You can't sow seed of prayerlessness and reap the fruit of intimate communion with God. You can't sow seed of selfishness and reap the fruit of selfless love. You can't sow seed of moral compromise and reap fruit of holiness. You see, in the natural order, if you sow a certain type of seed and then pray that God would make it something else, he's not going to warp his natural order to accommodate our fancies. Likewise, if you sow bad seed in the garden of life and expect good fruit, God is not going to warp his moral order and violate his holiness to accommodate sin. We reap what we sow. Now this is true both at the individual level as well as at the corporate level. And I want to touch on this briefly because this is often overlooked. We tend to think in individual categories to the neglect of the collective. The corporate level, I'm speaking of groups, of people, of various kinds, families, churches, and nations. Just take this nation, for example. This nation was founded on biblical principles and values. And for a time, the nation reaped the benefits of that. But while enjoying the benefits of that, our civil fathers, our ecclesiastical fathers, and our familial fathers stopped sowing good seed and started sowing bad seed. Now we are witnessing the rotten fruit of that all around us with the destruction of the American family, 
with modern churches that are more like circus and theater and wells of falsehood and civil government that is so corrupt at every level we are currently living under oppressive tyranny with only the illusion that we are still free. Parents, and particularly fathers, you must sow good seed in the garden of your families. That is a wealth of biblical seed as well as seed of investments. Investing time, energies, and resources that you need in order to build strong homes. The same holds true with leadership in the churches and leadership in the civil sphere. Whether family, church, or government, these are good institutions ordained by God. And the church is uniquely called to be the prophetic voice to preach the whole counsel of God to the world so that everyone would honor the Lord Jesus Christ in every sphere of life, accordance with his law word. All of Christ for all of life. You see, it's not just about the individual level. Corporate seeds will reap corporate consequences as well. That is certainly the individual level, what is of primary and foundational importance because salvation occurs at the individual level. But then there is discipleship and learning to live faithfully as a Christian under the lordship of Christ in all matters of life. That includes Christian faithfulness in the home, Christian faithfulness in the churches, Christian faithfulness in public and political life. And should we have God's blessing? And it's all dependent on his blessing. To be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, we might just eventually reap the benefits of sowing good seed. We reap what we sow at the individual level, and we reap what we sow in these corporate categories. And though not necessarily of equal importance and emphasis, they are nonetheless all important. So if you search the scriptures, and invest the necessary time, energy, and resources into your own life, you can see good things in your life. If you search the scriptures and invest the necessary time, energy, and resources into your families, you can see good things in your families. If you search the scriptures and invest in this church, you can see good things in your church. And if you search the scriptures and invest in public and political life, you can see good things in public and political life. But it all begins with us, getting on our needs to plead the Lord's blessing and then adopting the personal responsibility to go out there and scatter, to scatter good seed in all of these spheres. Beginning in the home and in the churches, and the local church is always gonna be the main hub in which we are nourished, discipled, and equipped, and then out of which we can scatter good seed, and the world around us can be transformed. Some of us are just crazy enough to believe that's possible. So, that's a brief aside about corporate life. I'm just trying to sow some seed there. Now back to the individual level, which is the primary application of our text. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. The moral here is that we can't expect to sow bad seed and get good fruit, because everything produces according to its kind, according to the divine law. So we've got that down. In verse 8, Paul continues with this sowing and reaping analogy, but the analogy changes slightly as he shifts the locus from what we sow to which of two fields we sow in. Notice what he says. He says, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Again, picture yourself in the garden. 
Only now, there's not one field in front of you, there are two fields, one on your left and one on your right. The field on your left is an accursed field. You've sown in it before, it's tried and tested, and it always produces bad results. It produces weeds, briars, and thorns. Much of the soil is rocky and sterile. The fruit is always rotten, and the field gets filled with snakes and creeping things that are near impossible to get rid of. On the other hand, the field on your right is a blessed field. You've sown in it before. It's tried and tested, and it always yields good results. It produces beautiful flowers, bushes, and fruit trees. The soil is rich. The fruit is always sweet. The beads help to pollinate, and the birds come and sing sweet melodies. Now, since you know these things to be true, because you've sown in both of these fields before, what would be the wise thing to do moving forward? Unless you're a glutton for punishment, you would never sow to the field on your left again. You would leave it alone forever, and you would always sow to the field on your right. That's wise gardening. And you would make that obvious choice every time. Well, the principle here is that we have two fields to choose from. The field of the flesh and the field of the spirit. And you must choose one. You can't choose neither. And you can't choose both. Everyone must make a choice, and the choice has both temporal and eternal consequences. Let's begin with the field of the flesh. The word for flesh is sarx, and Paul frequently uses this term to refer to the unregenerate, uncrucified self. It is self-centered and self-gratifying living that is ultimately self-destructive. The flesh lusts against the spirit, And when fleshly lust conceives, it brings forth the sinful works of the flesh. As far as works of the flesh, Paul has several such lists in the New Testament, but keeping within the context of Galatians, he presents one of his more extensive lists in chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, if you'd like to look at that with me. In chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, Paul says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and just in case he left anything out, he says, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, what will those who practice such things reap? That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Instead, you will reap corruption, which is decay, rottenness, death, and destruction. You can't sow to that field and expect different results. But if you want different results, what you can do is sow to the other field, which is the field of the spirit, so to the spirit. And this is also expounded in chapter five. If you look up at verse 16, he admonishes them. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Sow to the one and it will keep you busy from sowing to the other. And what kind of fruit will that produce? If you jump down to verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
and self-control. So we have these two options in chapter 5. The flesh or the spirit. Two ways of life. The works of the flesh or walking in the spirit. And then two types of reaping. Do you want the reaping of not inheriting the kingdom of God and instead reaping corruption or do you want to reap the fruit of the spirit, the kingdom and everlasting life? You can't have both. And verse 24 makes this very plain. He says, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The flesh must be crucified. The works of the flesh must be put to death. You can't have the flesh and the spirit. So again, this is the proverbial fork in the road. To the unbeliever, you must choose one path or the other. There is no third path leading to some third destination. You have to choose one. Children, as you so often hear from your parents and the pastors from this sacred pulpit, do you want to reap the fruit of corruption? Do you want to live for this life and the things of the flesh and not inherit the kingdom of God? Or will you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, walk in the spirit and reap everlasting life? To the professing believer who has made a profession of faith while harboring sin in your heart and life, you cannot have both. You cannot have one foot on the path of the flesh and one foot on the path of the spirit. These two paths, they split further and further apart. And as your feet split further and further apart, eventually you'll have to make a choice and time will tell on which path your heart truly lies. You must choose one. To my brothers and sisters, we have a choice to make as well. We have to do as it says in verse 25. He says, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. If we have been reborn into the reality that is life in the spirit of God, let us live that out. Not sowing in both fields. Not sowing primarily to the spirit, but occasionally sowing to the field of the flesh. And then pleading with God that it doesn't grow into anything. Or willfully sinning and pleading with God that we won't have to face any consequences whatsoever for our actions. That would violate the divine law of the moral order here. I like this quote from John Corson. This is from his application commentary on Galatians. He said, the law of the harvest, it is irrevocable and incontestable. And if I should say, Lord, forgive me, I shouldn't have gone there, said that, or done the other, he does forgive. But the seed I planted in sin will still come to fruition. And how many of us have found this to be true? There's a well-known clinical psychologist. I like to listen to a lot of his work. He's a bit of a controversial figure. I won't mention his name. But this is what he has said after decades of clinical practice. He said, in all the years that I've gotten to know my clients and their stories, what I have learned is that no one ever gets away with anything. That is a thought that he is afraid of and seeks to apply in his life. We've all had to endure some things in our lives, some of them not our own doing. But I'm sure that if we take some time to reflect and think about some of those really difficult things we've had to endure, we can draw straight lines back to particular sin in our lives. I would confess that some of the hardest things I've had to endure was me reaping exactly what I sowed. And in hindsight, I knew it. I knew it, and I had to live with that. It's the hard lesson of consequence. 
But one last thing I would say about consequences is that they often take time, like fruit, to fully develop before they are reaped. Sometimes we choose to sin because we don't think there will be immediate consequences. Time goes on, we forget about it. Perhaps we even think that we got away with something, but that is self-deception. God is not mocked. It could be a month, a year, five years later or more, and the sowing and reaping analogy is helpful in teaching us that there might be this divine delay. Again, you're in your garden. You sow a seed in the ground. You know you're not going to see it sprout in a day. You can go out there day after day, week after week, with some things, month after month, and there's nothing there. But that doesn't mean that there's not something taking place in the soil under the surface. It's a process. There's a process taking place, and you'll know it when you eventually see the sprout. And the sprout grows to become a tree, a fruit-bearing tree that you then are able to partake of that fruit. That's the natural order. Things typically take time. It's the same in God's moral order. Eventually, the seed will sprout, and we will reap what we sow, either in this life or the next, and ultimately, all fruit will be exposed before the judgment seat of Christ. We will reap corruption, or we will reap everlasting life. In closing, one final appeal for those outside of Christ and one final word of encouragement to the brethren. And for both, I want to go all the way back to another garden, the Garden of Eden, as Pastor Doug preached this morning. When Adam sinned, his sin brought death. He sowed a bad seed, and he reaped corruption, just as God said. His eyes were opened. He knew he was naked. He tried to cover his nakedness with fig leaves, and he hid amongst the trees of the garden, but he couldn't hide. God came and he called, where are you? There was no hiding from the reaping. Unbeliever, that's you. You have sinned. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've sowed bad seed. And perhaps you've even been convicted of that. And the tendency is to then try to cover your own sin and shame and hide from God. But there is no hiding from the reaping. God will call, where are you? And you will have to give an answer for your life if you do not repent of your sins and trust in Christ and follow him. That's the law of sowing and reaping. So I plead with you, turn from your sin and you will be saved. For my brothers and sisters, we know that we too have sinned even after coming to the knowledge of the truth. Perhaps there are Specific sins God has brought to mind even during this message. And sometimes after we sin, we too still act like old Adam. Trying to cover up ourselves. Hiding from God. But we don't have to do that. Remember what God did after giving the promise of the seed of the woman. The seed who would crush the head of the serpent. After God gave that promise... He made garments of animal skins to clothe Adam and Eve. The first blood sacrifice and clothing of the skins of another was from God, and it was a type of redemption in Christ. Your sins, eternally speaking, are covered in the blood of Jesus, 
And you are clothed from God in the righteousness of Christ by faith. So we don't have to hide. We can step out into the light and make confession of sins. And the scripture says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Be encouraged in that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Be encouraged. But don't forget the law of sowing and reaping. Every decision that you make and every moment of every day, you are always sowing something. We're never not sowing. You're always sowing something. You're sowing bad seed or good seed. You're sowing to the flesh or to the spirit, and that has very real consequences, either bad or good, corresponding to what we sow. If it's bad sowing, God as a loving father will, he absolutely will, you can't escape it, he will discipline his children. Sometimes that discipline is severe, and so be it, if that is what is needful for us. But if it is good sowing, we can also have the confidence that the Lord is going to take your good sowing and bring good consequences, both temporally, but especially eternally. And that is why Paul always sets the eternal in mind, as he does in this text. If we keep looking forward to the ultimate reward, reaping everlasting life, that will serve as all the motivation that we need to continue sowing to the Spirit. So if you live in the Spirit, and we do, let us also walk in the Spirit, for that is what we must do. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you for your word, and we confess to you our weakness, our deception, and even our sinfulness. Father, please correct us where we need correction. Teach us the law of sowing and reaping, and so set this law in our minds that we might not sin against you. We humbly ask that you forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness in your abundant mercies, Lord. Cleanse us from our secret faults. Keep us, your servants, from all presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over us, And may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Please bless this word to our church and the ears of others who hear it. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.